the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book on Genesis 2 and 3 titled, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 and 3. Now enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 40. Another quotation. Before I give my paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, let's put those verses in context. First, Paul writes a summary statement on ministry, starting with verse 26. What shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a teaching, a revelation or an interpretation. Let all things be done to build up the church. Then verse 33 For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the people of God. In verses 34 and 35, Paul quotes the legalists. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for it's not permitted for them to speak. But let them be subject, as also the law says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in church. Paul responds, Verse 36 and 7, Did the word of God come from you? Was it you only that it reached? If anyone claims to be a prophet or spiritually gifted, let that one acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. Practical application, verse 38, If anyone ignores this, that one will be ignored. As I studied by the yellow light of a kerosene lantern in our jungle home on the Bible Institute campus in Congo, I came to the discordant words of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. I had been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians as part of my class preparation. I had scaled the heights of the love chapter as I read through 1 Corinthians 13. As I continued to read, I was strengthened by Paul's description of the early church in chapter 14, verses 26 to 33. <laughs> but then I hit the harsh words of verses 34 and 35. Where had these words come from? I reached for a helpful book I had found in the school library by the noted 19th century archaeologist Sir William Ramsey. Just as was the case in 1 Corinthians 11, 4-6, here too the words in 1434 34-35 perfectly fit the pattern of Ramsey's dictum. He wrote that one could tell when Paul had inserted a quote, whenever there was a sudden change in subject, in vocabulary, style, or a combination of these. Here, Inserted in Paul's letter were words that sounded just like the legalistic Jewish scribes advocating the imposition of restrictions found in the Jewish oral law. If this was a quotation of the words of someone else, whose words could they be but theirs? Paul had quoted the legalists at Corinth a number of times in 1 Corinthians. Likely, the words in verses 34 and 35 were quoted by Paul in order to then give his own opinion of them. In my own print Bible, I have penciled in quotation marks around verses 34 and 35 to make the quote stand out clearly. From chapter to chapter through the length of 1 Corinthians, Paul strings together a series of replies in a well-written dialogue with the church at Corinth. As he draws near to the end of 1 Corinthians 14, he has one last proposal from Corinth to deal with. It is an especially distasteful one. After quoting it, Paul responds vigorously to it, 
and to those who have proposed it. In 1 Corinthians 11:16, Paul had described as contentious those who were the source of the words he quoted in 1 Corinthians 11:4-6. Those who are behind the words he quotes in 14:34-35, he identifies in verses 36 and 37 as acting just like the teachers of the Jewish oral law. Rejecting their proposals in verse 38, he advises the church to implement the teachings he himself has just given them in chapters 12 through 14. Why write? 1 Corinthians was written to the church of Corinth in response to numerous questions and proposals that had been communicated to Paul by messenger and by letter. Here are some verses in 1 Corinthians that refer to how Paul gained his information about the Corinthians. First, news by messenger. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that... Chapter 16, verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Then, news by letter. Chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things. There were major divisions in the church at Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 12, some had become arrogant and disputatious. Chapter 4, verse 18. Throughout his letter, Paul systematically deals with the issues that are bubbling over in Corinth. Paul usually introduces a new issue by inserting a quote from one of the proposals that have come to him from Corinth. He corrects each idea to the extent that it contains false doctrine and reiterates correct doctrines to hold and right practices to implement. From 11.2 to 14.40, Paul answers questions about how to worship in church. In the last verses of 14, Paul encourages each and every Corinthian believer let all things be done so that the church may be built up, 1426. He encourages them to preach and prophesy that all may learn and all may be encouraged, verse 31. This is what he has done in the other churches, verse 33. He wants this to be done in Corinth as well, as long as things are done decently and in order, verse 40. Previous to this point in this lengthy section of three chapters, 12 through 14, Paul has not inserted any more quotations from the Corinthians, but at the end of this section he does, in 34 and 35. In these two verses, the subject, tone, and vocabulary of the passage change noticeably. Then in verses 36 to 38 comes a return to Paul's normal vocabulary and style, with a strong rebuke to those who proposed the ideas contained in the previous two verses. Finally, in verses 39 and 40, the storm passes and earlier themes are picked up again. According to verses 34 and 35, some want the Corinthian Christians to adopt legalistic limitations on who can and who should not use their gifts for the building up of the church. Specifically, the proposal excludes Christian women from speaking in church. Let's start with verses 34 and 35, then move on to 36 and 37. The Legalist's Proposal let the women keep silent in the churches, for it's not permitted for them to speak. But let them be subject, as also the law says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's a shame for women to speak in church. What? Did the word of God come from you? Was it to you only that it reached? If anyone claims to be a prophet or spiritually gifted, let that one acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command." contentious claims. In verses 34 and 35, we encounter a string of bad ideas that do not belong to Paul. Why should women not speak or preach publicly? Because they're, they're not permitted. Permitted. 
By whom or by what? Women are to be subject. Why? Because that's what their law says. If a Christian woman has a Christian husband who is informed enough to be able to instruct her, she can learn from him at home. Preposterous. What law? People have suggested that the quote-unquote law being referred to in verse 34 is a reference to Genesis 3.16. However, Genesis 3.16 says nothing about speaking or about being silent. As we have seen earlier, that verse is not a curse, nor does God limit woman in any way. There is no such restriction in a true 3.16. Paul's teaching elsewhere in the New Testament is nothing like the proposal in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35. Let me quote what David Odell Scott says. Paul states time and again that Christians are not under the law, but are free of it. But now we are discharged from the law, Romans 7.6. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs the Gentile men of Corinth that they are free of the law and are therefore not required to be circumcised, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 18 and 19. Elsewhere, too, Paul has rejected the claim that the Gentile Christians should keep the Jewish dietary laws. Those who are proposing limitations on women in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35 are advocating the ideas of the legalists, the sayings of Jewish teachers that were passed on orally and later written down in the Jewish oral law. In an early article of his, Libertarian Women, Philip Payne pointed out how verse 34 indicates the source of these ideas. When Paul refers to the Old Testament, he usually does not write, as the law says which often suggests oral tradition, but just as it is written. Payne also pointed out the elements in these verses that come from the milieu of the Jewish oral law. Quote, According to Jewish customs, the part of the synagogue given to the scribes' teaching was open only to males, as its name suggests, Andron. Women were forbidden to teach. Their position in society was reflected in the common formula, women, slaves, and children. In the home, too, the wife was not even to pronounce the benediction after a meal. Close quote. The law appealed to in 1 Corinthians 14 is the oral law. The words used here, such as the Greek word for shame in verse 35, are typical of the rough language used in the oral law. They're not the kind of words Paul uses. This is an example of the segregationist practices of Jewish legalism seeping into the church. To clarify that verse 34 refers to the oral law, and not the Old Testament law with a capital L, Bible editors of the NIV removed the capitalization that was first used in the NIV of 1971. Instead of using a capital L, law, the verse now has a lowercase l, law, for as the law says. Was Paul intimidated? In making a reference to the oral law, those who contended with Paul made a serious tactical error. Paul no longer looked with favor on the rules he had followed as a Pharisee before his conversion. Paul had rebuked Peter for giving in to such influences, Galatians 2, 11-14. He would not be swayed by a similar appeal coming to him from Corinth. When the church at Jerusalem discussed the place of Jewish rules in the Christian church, Acts 15, Paul had been intimately involved at all levels of that discussion. Everyone agreed that Christians who were not Jews and did not practice all their rituals were still Christians. This meant that Jewish and non-Jewish Christians alike were expected to continue freely participating in every type of ministry. This was the tradition Paul preached when he founded the church in Corinth. 
Jesus set this example during his earthly ministry. Time and time again, he stripped away all the non-inspired regulations that had been attached to the message of the Old Testament and contradicted it. So, why are there no quotation marks around these verses in modern Bibles? Some Bible translations never use quotation marks because they were not used in the original Greek text. The original readers of the Bible in Greek simply had to figure out on their own where the quotations were. But most translations insert them now in most places because this is the way modern English is written. Though modern translations insert quotation marks for at least some of the quotations inserted by Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians, most don't indicate them around 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Why not? Some people argue that these verses were not a quotation to be refuted, but words that convey Paul's own ideas. This viewpoint has caused people to wander off in problematic directions. Here are some of the ideas they propose. One, this is a contradiction. In these verses, Paul contradicts what he has written elsewhere. Two, these verses are time-bound. This passage only applied in its original time and place, not today. Three, these verses were not in the original letter. They were added later by Paul or someone else. Four, some people try to modify the content of these verses by linking them with parts of the paragraphs before or after them. For example, they attach 33b to 34 and 35 or verse 36 to verses 34 and 35. 5. Unsure of the meaning of these verses, some try to explain what they mean by quickly referring to the content of other verses instead, so-called cross-references. Too often they mistake the content of the cross-references as well. The resulting tangle is very difficult to straighten out. 6. Other options. Some ignore these verses. They dismiss them because they don't like what they think they say. A better way. It is only necessary to recognize that here again, as at various points throughout his letter, Paul inserts a proposal from the Corinthians. These two verses are not an expression of his own ideas. His ideas come next. In verses 36 to 38, Paul unmasks and denounces the purveyors of this harmful legalism. Did the word of God come from you? Was it only to you that it reached? If anyone claims to be a prophet or spiritually gifted, let that one acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. Fighting back. Paul maintained a lifelong struggle against Jewish legalists. Virtually his whole letter to the Galatians revealed his battle against them. Here's an excerpt from chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment. Elsewhere, Paul took a word the Jews sneeringly used for non-Jews, dogs, and forcefully applied it to those Jews who wanted to require Gentile Christians to follow their laws in Philippians 3.2, watch out for those dogs, those who do evil. And now the good part. Who is Paul rebuking? Paul accuses the authors of the words in verses 34 and 35 of four things. These four indicate either that the proposals come from those who are under the influence of the teachers of the Jewish regulations, or that these proposals come from some of the Jewish teachers, the scribes, themselves. While I was studying in France, I came across a French edition of the book, Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus. In a lengthy appendix at the back of the book, the author Joachim Jeremias included an article where he described the scribes, the Jewish teachers of the law. He listed four outstanding characteristics of the scribes. 
By the way, his comments were made at a context totally divorced from the passage at hand. I found the overlap to be, therefore, all the more informative. According to Jeremias, the scribes were not mere stenographers who transcribed something. They were, quote-unquote, teachers of the law who claimed to be, one, individual sources of inspiration, two, possessors of a special and private esoteric knowledge, three, on a par with the prophets of the Old Testament, four, especially spiritual. These are the same four markers that define those whom Paul rebukes in verses 36 and 37. Marker 1. Individual sources of inspiration. The scribes considered themselves sources of inspiration, mouthpieces for God. What they said was supposed to be as authoritative, or even more so, than what the Old Testament prophets had written in the Bible. There were many false prophets in Old Testament times. God showed the people which ones were true prophets by bringing something to pass within a relatively short period after one of their prophecies was made. In this way, all their words were verified as true. If no prophecy of theirs came to pass, they would be stoned to death for being a false prophet. But no one ever stoned a scribe. This was the scribe's claim because, unlike the prophets, their words needed no verification. They taught that this showed that their words were more authoritative than those of the prophets. When Paul begins verse 36 by asking, Did the word of God come from you? He identifies the persons behind verses 34 and 35 as those who claim to have the prophetic authority to tell the Corinthians the word of God. But Paul knows God does not contradict himself. Paul accepts no contradiction of the inspired teachings he has given the Corinthians. Marker 2. Possessors of a special and private knowledge. The scribes claimed to be keepers of a private and secret body of knowledge. They claimed that they alone had the inside track on God's revelation. Paul critiques the authors of verses 34 and 35 for this attitude when he asks in verse 36, Was it you only that the word of God reached? Marker 3. On a par with the prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremias pointed out that the scribes demanded to be addressed in public by the title of prophet so-and-so and not of scribe so-and-so. Paul takes aim at those who think of themselves in this way as prophets. He did not think of them in that way. He challenges them point-blank, did any of them claim to be a prophet? Marker 4. Especially spiritual. In verse 37, Paul refers to those who consider themselves to be spiritually gifted. The scribes thought of themselves as superior to others in this very way. Paul challenges them. Uh, did they think they were spiritually gifted? A thunderous rebuke. In response to his four rhetorical questions, Paul affirms in verse 37b that his word has divine authority, not theirs. He alone has been called by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians 2, 7 and 8. Those who reject Paul's teachings are to be identified as ignorant of what God truly says to the church. Anything further that comes from these ignorant individuals is to be ignored by the church. Verse 38. Paul starts verse 36 with the one-letter Greek word eta, meaning what? Or indeed, this word was often used in a diatribe or the middle of a written dialogue. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? In 1 Corinthians 10.22, this same Greek word is used at the start of his reply to those Corinthians who are putting undue stress on the saying, All things are lawful. There, Paul uses it to introduce his vigorous response, Indeed, do we really get the better of the Lord? 
With this introduction in verse 36, Paul rejects the self-righteous assumptions of the men voiced in verses 34 and 35 who believe women should be silent. What is Paul not saying? Since many people take verses 34 to 35 as Paul's own ideas, we need to realize how important it is to correctly identify these words as coming from other people, those influenced by the scribes. Since these are not Paul's words, but ideas he vigorously rejects, it means that, one, Paul does not say in any way that Christian women should be silent. Two, Paul does not say that women should be subject. Three, Paul does not restrict women from learning the word of God. Four, Paul does not consider women's words to be shameful. Five, Paul does not respect nor defer to any law that teaches any of this. Moving on. In verses 39 and 40, Paul leaves behind the diversion of the legalists. He picks up his train of thought from the end of verse 33. His words harmonize with what precedes verses 34 to 38. After the disruption of verses 34 and 35, and his dismissal of them in 36 to 38, those words of restriction play no further part in his teaching and ministry. Clearing away the bad ideas that clutter much thinking on the Garden of Eden is possible with a true view of Genesis 3.16. Even so, clearing away that clutter of bad ideas in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35 makes it possible for us to see Paul's glorious main ideas of 1 Corinthians 12.13 and 14. And the greatest of these is love. You've been listening to the Eden Podcast, and we invite you to visit our website at true316.com. That's tru316.com for links to our books, blog posts, and our YouTube channel with more than a dozen in-depth workshops on the seven key Bible passages on women and men from Eden on. You can also receive a study guide on this episode for use in small groups and more. Find that in our blog posts at our website or email bruce at true316.com to request the study guide. The Eden Podcast is brought to you by the True 316 Project. True316.com You can help move forward the True 316 Project. Please visit patreon.com. And thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Mm-hmm.